imaginary. Hey, hey, and hello. Welcome back to the Imaginary Advice Podcast. First episode of 2021. Um, This episode, we're going to hear a brand new story from writer-performer John Osborne. John is a poet, a screenwriter, theatre maker, radio maker. I should say, for clarification purposes, this is not the playwright John Osborne who wrote Look Back in Anger in 1955. Guys, this ain't your granddad's John Osborne. This is uh this is a John Osborne for the new generation. Insert guitar solo. And um yeah, I'm really excited to share with you this new story of his. John's been on the show before, actually. He was the co-writer on the episode set behind the scenes of Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, if you heard that one. It's actually one of my favourite episodes of the podcast. John's been uh, a friend and writing colleague of mine for many, many years. In fact, we were both in the same writing collective that uh, toured together doing shows in theatres, festivals, pubs, etc. for many, many years. Um, among other shows that we did together. We had a... We were lucky enough to, um, to have an annual set at Glastonbury Festival. <laughs> the uh, the cabaret tent at Glastonbury, uh, it used to open, I think it was about 10 a.m. Uh, and it used to open with this um, huge percussion band. They're a bit like Stomp, right? It was this huge sound and uh, people would flood back into this huge tent, kind of thousand capacity tent to uh, to listen to this incredible high energy music uh shaking off their hangovers and then um when the band finished uh this you know this sort of 40 piece percussion band would leave the stage and they'd send us on uh me and john and uh the four other members of our collective to um read the crowd some poetry to really take that that intense tribal rhythm and uh, and to run with it basically if it was raining that morning, and you know it was almost always raining at Glastonbury, like we could end up coming out to six hundred, eight hundred, maybe even a thousand people, which is a lot of people to disappoint so early in the morning. The uh, the organisers of the cabaret tent had uh, they correctly ascertained that it was too early in the day to put on a stand-up comedian because the crowd was just. They were just too tired and hung over to laugh. However, it was okay to put poets on because no one in the history of art has ever been able to work out if a poetry reading is going well or not. They just sort of run their course and then they end, right? The um, the poet Michael Donaghy, uh, the great uh, poet Michael Donaghy, he, um, he once said that uh, he hated doing poetry readings because a room full of people that are impossibly moved and uh, a room full of people who are impossibly bored 
are pretty much indistinguishable from each other. I mean, you could argue for the perspective of the poets on stage, that, that, that's, a, that's a blessing as much as a curse. Anyway, whenever um, we did these, uh, these opening shows at uh, Glastonbury, we'd always try to convince John to go on first. Because, because he's the kindest of all of us. He's like the most generous and heartfelt and um, honest and disarming and real. He's, he's the realist. I just mean he feels like the most three-dimensional person. And we just reasoned, you know, if, if they hate John, then the rest of us were never going to stand a chance. So John was often pleaded into uh, opening for us. The way it was meant to work is, you know, once John had um, generated some good faith in the tent, then, you know, I could squander it by doing something weird. And then uh, the other guys could kind of pull it back again and end on some kind of big finale. And then as soon as it was over, um, yeah, we'd, we'd run from the tent as, as fast as anyone can run in a 12 inches of mud. Anyway, uh, I guess I was just thinking about our Glasto sets recently and I thought, well, yeah, maybe just like our Glasto set, Maybe it would be nice to start this new year at a podcast with uh, a piece by John Osborne to yet again lean on John to <laughs> help me. Well, you know, set off as as, as I would want to continue because um, I really miss doing gigs with the guy and um, I need his writing in my life right now. It, um, it always puts a smile on my face. This story was originally going to be John's uh, new theatre show for the 2020 Edinburgh Fringe. But it was written pre-COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, it's, it was written pre-pandemic, which makes the whole thing feel like... Um, it does make the whole thing feel like a window into another time now. I just feel like it's a different, different thing entirely now. At one point I mentioned how I'd like to spend more time in my flat... And uh, I've definitely had that wish come true. You could say in a way like John's story feels nostalgic now because it's a it's a memory of a world before. But um, at the same time, like the whole thing is kind of like a critique of nostalgia. So I think the story actually pushes back against us getting too wistful for the things that have passed. Anyway, here's John. This is my car plays tapes. A few weeks ago, I went to the pub. A big gang of us. I forgot what it feels like sitting in a pub, loads of you. A big table, real ale and crisps and should we get more crisps absolutely he was friendly that bloke i had a piss next to at the urinal wearing an idol's t-shirt good pub this we agree but back at the big table after a couple more beers and exchanging life updates we talked about the news we'll admit we're starting to get a bit scared now how bad is this going to get? It never used to be like this. Ever. Not that we can remember. 
I don't really know what's going on, even though I listen to the New Statesman podcast every Thursday, which is really good, but when every episode finishes I think, yeah, I haven't retained any of that. How did things get so bad? We've got friends who have fallen out. They might never talk again. That's the way it feels. Any conversation that starts, the thing is, or, well, what you haven't read, isn't going to end well. It's scary. But even though the world has been so horrible, I actually feel pretty good right now. I've started seeing someone new, which doesn't happen often. I'm worried it won't work out, but let's see how it goes. That's what I say about everything now. Let's see how it goes. Sometimes I look at my friends and think, yeah, we are all getting pretty old now. I used to be so scared about that. But now it's here, I don't mind it. Look at them. My adorable, chubby, middle-aged friends. I like nearly all of them. I've slept on all of their settees. Oh, getting older. It's really hard. I guess my sister doesn't realise how rapidly her baby grows, but I see it in her WhatsApp photos. He is so beautiful. In so many different ways, my tiny nephew, who has the same name as my boss, and life has been much easier at work since I've been talking to them in the same way. You are tired. That's why you've been so grumpy. Do you need a little sleep? Would you like some banana? Don't get any on your tummy. Were you up all night? crying again your poor parent a couple of weeks ago I was driving to work on my last few journeys I started to think that this car doesn't quite feel right I will definitely get that looked at when I get some time but I started to lose all power and the warning lights came on and I realised I was too late. I had to pull over and put my hazards on while cars indicated to go around me. I sat there for about ten minutes, not going anywhere, not doing anything, just sitting there, unable to deal with it. Hazards on, bonnet up. I don't have a clue about cars, but I was pretty sure this was bad. I sat there, trying the ignition over and over. I felt sick and scared. You know that feeling when you have no idea what to do, but something is entirely your responsibility. I wasn't panicking. I was just sort of numb to it. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I just felt lucky that I'd been able to pull over. Occasionally I got out to look at the engine, but I don't know what I was looking at. But then, out of nowhere, a car indicated and pulled in behind me. 
And this guy got out and came up to me and said, you okay? I said, no. <laughs> Not really. He'd seen me with my hazards on. He just wanted to make sure I was all right. He said, it's horrible, isn't it? He said a couple of years ago, he'd broken down, stranded at night, on his own, without even a phone, out in the middle of nowhere. But someone driving past stopped and helped. He said, sorry, I don't really know much about cars, which wasn't ideal. But he stood with me while I phoned the RAC. And when the RAC guy arrived, he went through my options, but he said, look, I've been a mechanic for 35 years. There's no way this is going to survive. It's done its time. The next day it was scrapped, gone forever. My little car that had never even had a puncture before. I was so worried about money and what I was going to do next. Couldn't afford a new car. This was a disaster. It was scary. But something on that hard shoulder was revived because of that patient guy who stopped to check that someone was okay and they were in no rush to drive away. I drive a lot with my job. There were so many crashes and bumps and cars on hard shoulders with their indicators on, with their hazard warning lights on, but we all drive past. That's what I do. I'm always in a rush to get somewhere. I like my job. I'm a support worker for adults with learning disabilities. I go from house to house, working in the community, visiting people who need help with medication and with cooking and getting out. There's one man I support who told me once that I had my jumper on inside out, and I thought, who is in charge of who here? I've done it for three and a half years. It's minimum wage, but I like it. I write, too. Half my life a support worker, the other half writing. I quite like it to be that way forever. In my car or at my desk. One of the people I support is non-verbal. She lives in a crowded house with three loud men with learning disabilities of varying severity. And she doesn't like it. It's not ideal. I feel a bit sorry for her. On my first day, my boss said the things that make her happy are being in the car, driving around and sitting in cafes. He said, you won't believe how much she changes. She's so tense and anxious at home, but as soon as she's out, she's relaxed. So that's what we do pretty much every day, me and her. I drive her around and there's a cafe that serves good coffee for £1.30. And she sits there with her decaf latte. And at first I thought it would be good to get a book out or to get on with some writing or read something on my phone. I realised that would be rude. So at first I just sat there, bored, not knowing what to do. But gradually I learnt to embrace this solitude. Enjoy having permission to zone out from the rest of the world. 
sitting there where you don't need to worry about talking. The cafe we go to plays piano music. It's always the same album, instrumental versions of soul songs. I like the repetition of the same album being played in the same cafe, being served by the same waitress ordering the same thing, sitting at the same table listening to the same songs that don't have any words, just piano. I don't know if she's listening, the person I support. It's so hard to even have a vague idea of what's happening inside anyone else's head. I think she likes it though. I hope so. The best songs aren't complicated. You can play the melody with one finger. The people I like best are straightforward too. They reply to your text. After I'd taken her out a few times, I heard two people I work with talking about her. And they said, it's nice how much she likes John. They sounded surprised. And I'm not normally one to retweet my own reviews, but this felt a special thing to hear. I was so rubbish at my job when I started it. I didn't know what I was doing and I always felt I was in the wrong place and thought about quitting every day. I thought this isn't for me. But I was starting to get the hang of it. I don't have much going for me. But at least I can offer her this continuity. And that's what I worried about. Waiting on that hard shoulder for the RAC. How was I going to do my job without a car? I don't have much money. None of us do. Support workers. A tiny little bit saved, but it's so hard on minimum wage. I was worried about having to buy the cheapest car on Gumtree or from Autotrader, but someone I worked with knew someone who knew someone who was selling a polo, and something about that felt right. My mum and dad's first car was a polo. I quite liked the idea of owning one too. So I asked for a number and I gave her a call. And when I got to her house, she said, look, I'm not going to ask for money. This car has been with me my entire adult life. I just want to see it go to a good home. She said it's in good condition. Her girlfriend is a mechanic, so it's been well looked after, but it is pretty old. She said, there's no electric windows, you have to wind them down. But that's good exercise for your elbows. And she said, I'll show you the tricky way to take the petrol cap off. You'll get the hang of it eventually. And there's no CD player and the radio doesn't work. So it only plays tapes. There's some Jamiroquai in the glove compartment that I'll throw in for free. But hopefully you've got some cassettes. I said, look, I might not know much about cars, but look at my trainers. Look at my jumper. I don't have much but I've got tapes. If you had to describe me in one line, it would be someone 
who has kept their old cassettes. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. Night swimming by REM was the last track on the first compilation tape my first proper girlfriend made for me. And I think about her whenever I hear that song, which isn't a lot, because I'm not really that bothered about R.E.M. But sometimes it's used in a film, or on a teleprogram, or it's played on absolute radio 90s. A few weeks after getting my new car, I went over to my dad's. And while I was there, I went up to my old bedroom where there was a cardboard box that was still full of old cassettes that I'd made when I was a teenager. Blur recorded off Radio 1 from Glastonbury in 1998. There was Eddie Izzard and Sean Hughes and Just a Minute and Derek and Clive. There was old episodes of The Arches that I'd recorded when my mum had been at parents' evening that was overrunning, and she'd phone us up and say, tell John to record The Arches. Her one goal in life was to be back home from parents' evening before The Arches started. All these hours and hours of tapes. I kept all these things because I thought I'd always want them. But that's the way that you owned music. That's how music used to be listened to. Tapes. And sometimes CD. We didn't know what was going to happen next. I think that's as happy as I've ever been. Being a teenager, sitting at my desk, making those tapes. I liked being 15. I loved the melancholy and finding the right songs for moods, and learning things, working things out. I worked hard on those tapes. I'd sit there listening to the radio with blank tapes poised, pressing play and record when a good song came on. It was fun looking through this massive cardboard box of cassette tapes that I made when I was a teenager. And then I found it, a tape that says, For John, in her handwriting and immediately I remembered her nose and earlobes and belly button the funny spelling of her middle name the way she said hey when she saw me and she'd put both arms in the air and just by holding the four John tape in my hand I remember every track in the right order Natalie and Brulia, Pixies The Cranberries holding that tape in my hands I remember everything I spend the whole afternoon looking through old things. I stay for dinner. My dad is proud of his cooking these days. I talk to him about the weather and Mourinho and the new Aldi near his house. Then I take the tapes out to the car. As I drive out of the cul-de-sac, I put in the Four John tape. I feel 
unexpectedly disconnected from that person the tape was made for. I don't know what to do with nostalgia. As I listen to the tape, it's like the words and instruments aren't there anymore. Just the sound of faraway piano. If there was a fire, it's that box of tapes that I'd have saved. But now they're just a nostalgic curiosity. It's strange to think about the girl who made me the Fort John tape. Who made me so happy such a long time ago. I still got her brother's copy of The Commitments by Roddy Doyle. And I thought about her dad when I heard Clive James had died. It's funny how we associate people in our heads. Someone told me she lives in New Zealand now, which seems like a lie. But I guess sometimes people do move to New Zealand. The last time I saw her was at her best friend's surprise 18th party. But I might not have gone to that. It's hard to remember what actually happened in the past. She'd never been on a plane back then. I bet she's been on loads now. But she was there the day I passed my driving test. And we all went to the pub with her mum and dad and sister the day that she passed hers. Her mum had scampi and her dad had half a rotisserie chicken. Why do I remember that? It's taken a while to feel right in this new car. The polo that plays tape. I miss my old Fiesta. Sometimes I drive around doing my support work, listening to my old tapes. And I wonder why I haven't got a good car. Other people seem to manage it. I don't know. I guess I'm just destined to be the guy who drives around listening to his old tapes. The other day I was driving, listening to an old compilation tape, full blast, with my windows down and Echo Belly were playing, and a man crossing the road heard Echo Belly and put his arm in the air and said, Echo Belly, without even looking to see where the music was coming from. Another reason I drive a lot is because I do rural touring. Pretty much every support worker I work with has a second job. We have to. The woman I work with does evening shifts at her chicken factory. A bloke who quit a while ago is also a window cleaner. And based on his skills as a support worker, probably not a very good one. For me, it's rural touring. I wrote a theatre show a few years ago, and it's popular with people who book that kind of thing. First, it's time for John Peel's Shed, an ode to radio, those records, and anyone who's ever sought solace in the wireless. 
everybody, this is a show called John Peel's Shed, and its origins are in this box of records I won in a competition on John Peel's Radio 1 show in 2002. Now, one night I was listening back... So I go to village halls, and I do my show. The person in charge is always called something like John Bailey or Avril. They'll already have sent you an introductory email... Sometimes they ask you if you want to stay over, or sometimes you end up in an A-road travel lodge. And you think, I really don't know how long I can keep doing this. So many miles in my car, going to village halls, doing the same show, over and over. Sometimes I get there early and walk around the village and think, fuck me, these are big houses. What even is this? doing a gig in a village hall. You think, I don't really want to do this, I want to be in my flat. I don't spend any time there. I'm always in my car, working, or in my car, driving to village halls far, far away. But, John Bailey is a nice man. And he meets you at the village hall at six o'clock and he offers you a cup of tea straight away once he's told you that no, that isn't where you park. But there's no rush. Have a sit down first before you move it. He tells me he's heard me on Radio 4. And that always feels nice. And him and Avril have been looking forward to this all day. Before the show, there's time for him to take me back to where I'll be staying. He shows me up to where I'm sleeping. This was their daughter's room. This is where she grew up. You can see the blue tap from where the Let Loose and Keanu Reeves and East Seven used to be. And next to the bed there's a photograph of her on her graduation day. She's standing proudly with her mum and dad, Avril and John Bailey, beaming smiles. And you think those parents are waiting for me downstairs. They're about to start unstacking chairs in the village hall. John Bailey tells me their daughter works for the British Embassy in Hong Kong and they love Skyping their granddaughters Esme and Jenna. They look at me, tired after a long drive and my battered rusty polo. And they're glad their daughter didn't choose a career in the arts. John Bailey pops his head in to make sure I'm okay and tells me we'll be heading off to the village hall in ten minutes. He shows the cord you have to pull to make the shower work and tells me performers at the village hall always stay in this room. Dara O'Brien stayed there before he was so well known. A very nice man, he tells me proudly. And I bet when Dara arrived on the evening of his show in the village hall, he threw his bag on the bed and sighed just as I did, and thought, where am I? I get my things together and go downstairs, and Avril gets her torch out, and John Bailey says goodbye to the dog, and we walk down to the village hall. It's because I had no other options that I became a support worker. I had no writing work anymore. 
I was thinking that I'd written some theatre and TV and some books. And I'd met Zoe Ball. And I've been a guest on Richard Bacon's five live shows, so I can't have done that badly. I managed to make a living by writing things that I liked. What a beautiful thing to have been able to do. Probably the best thing that ever happened to me was when I was in a pub with my friend who was an actor and her phone beeped and she checked her texts and said, that was from Natalie Imbruglia. Imagine being in the same pub as someone who knows Natalie Imbruglia. So I did well. I'm proud of the things that I made. But what are we supposed to do with all these achievements? Feels like nothing we've done in the past means anything anymore. Are we supposed to keep mementos of everything? That we keep in a cardboard box at our dad's house? with our school books and ticket stubs and old love letters and think I'll definitely sort that out one day. Far too often we're forced to be confronted with this nostalgia for sad reasons. None of the people I support care about any of the things that I've achieved, the good reviews or festivals I've been to. I loved being a writer, but the rejection started coming in and people stopped replying to my emails, which is just what happens, isn't it? I'd had my turn. I was surprised I'd made it last so long. My friend Katie is a support worker. She's an artist too. I love her paintings. Sometimes she told me about the people she supported and one day she said, I think you'd be good at that. So that's what I do now. I'm a support worker, too. When the show finishes at the Village Hall, it's always the same. There's always a man in purple trousers with a worryingly red face who tells me he didn't know if he'd like it, but he's friends with Avril from church, and she told him he should come. So he came along and he actually thought it was quite good. And how do I remember all the words? What do you do when you're not doing all this? They sometimes ask. And I sort of look embarrassed and say, well, this is sort of my life, really. This is what I do. It's a long way to come, all the way from Norwich they say, and they're right. Sometimes when I talk to successful people about my career, it's like I'm telling them about my Tamagotchi. Oh, really? You're still keeping that alive? Yeah, I am. I just like having something to carry around in my pocket. Afterwards, Avril pays you with a cheque. And the village hall has given you the leftover wine, and the three of you go back. I take my shoes off and we sit at the big table while John Bailey gets the cheese out. And they tell me about their grandchildren. And then Avril says goodnight, loads the dishwasher, and heads to bed with a book. And me and John Bailey stay up and talk about roads. After a bit more wine, I go up to the bedroom where a teenage girl grew up, not realising one day she'd work for the British Embassy. 
and have two little girls. And while she was living in Hong Kong, her bedroom would become the guest room where me, Dara O'Brien, and probably John Hegley have all stayed. And in the morning, we get up early, me, Dara and John Hegley, and we go downstairs where coffee is being made for us, and Avril will give us a rack of toast and tell us that she made the jam with gooseberries from the garden. And now that it's daylight, we'll see how beautiful the view is through their French windows. And I'll get my things together and say thanks for having me, and when I drive home, Avril will be getting on with the rest of her day in the garden, with the gooseberry bush thinking happy thoughts about Esme and Jenna while I'm on the A303 listening to a compilation tape made for me when the people who are overtaking me weren't even born. It's Blur playing live at the Glastonbury Festival on Radio 1. Complaints Commission Lord Wakem has called for continued restraint by newspapers and magazines in their coverage of Prince William. The Prince leaves school this week. BBC Radio 4 News. In November last year, I did three village hall shows in three nights in Devon. Three John Baileys, three Avrils, three men in purple trousers saying they didn't think they'd like it but actually they thought it was okay. Three types of homemade jam, three bedrooms with graduation photographs on the walls. Dara O'Brien stayed here, Dara O'Brien stayed here, Dara O'Brien stayed here. Driving back to Norwich after the last in my run of shows, the engine warning lights came on. I didn't know what to do. So I thought I'd call Georgina. She said her girlfriend was a mechanic. The last car had been scrapped because I'd ignored these warning signs. People who have kept their old tapes from the mid-90s all ignore warning signs on dashboards. It's what we do. We're not very good at life. Georgina was happy I'd called and told me the name of her girlfriend's garage and said I should go there and she'd sort it out. She asked how I was getting on with the Jamiroquai tapes and I said, slowly. <laughs> in the waiting room at Georgina's girlfriend's garage, there are thank you cards on the windowsill and on the little table next to the armchairs. I've never seen thank you cards in a garage waiting room before. Who sends a thank you card to their mechanic? What a nice thing to do. Georgina's girlfriend tells me she has a new mechanic who is starting a one-year apprenticeship today. She's out there now learning how to change her first tyre. This new apprentice, she lives in their block of flats. She's only 17. She hated sixth form. Her and Georgina's girlfriend used to have cigarettes together by the back door and one night she said well you can come and work for me if you like they went up a couple of flights to talk to her dad who was delighted what a sensible idea and already she's decided this is what I want to do forever 
There are three of us in the waiting room at Georgina's girlfriend's garage. Look at us. Three sad, tired men waiting for our shit cars to be mended. We all look like we need our MOTs. The lifeguard has told us we're not allowed to swim in the fast lane anymore. We're all impressed by Jurgen Klopp and were excited when idols were quite good on Jules Holland. We didn't think that kind of thing happened anymore. We don't know if we should write happy birthday on people's Facebook pages. Do people still do that? Oh, getting older. It's really hard. Georgina's girlfriend comes over to say hi and asks if I want a cup of tea and she tells me about the polo. Georgina bought it when they were first together. They've been together since sixth form and even then it felt like an old car. They grew up in a village just outside Great Yarmouth and they were both so unhappy they weren't allowed to do anything together or go anywhere. They were stuck. As soon as she was 17, Georgina bought the polo with money she'd saved from her paper round. And now that she'd passed her driving test, it meant they weren't confined to this village anymore. They loved that car. They drove everywhere, listening to Jamiroquai and drum and bass. And they spent all their time making each other compilation tapes. And they went to so many raves in Thetford Forest. Their car was always full of people looking forward to things. If you needed a lift... Georgina would take you. They loved not being stuck in this village anymore. They'd fill their boot with their things and drive across the beautiful Norfolk coast. For the last couple of years, they haven't needed Georgina's car so much. But they couldn't bring themselves to scrap it. It meant so much to them. Maybe there's someone else who'd like to drive it, they thought. Maybe it had one more bit of life in it. And that's where I came along. Someone a bit stuck in life who was so grateful for anything. I had been saved. Just like all the people who had sent in those thank you cards to Georgina's garage. After a while in the waiting room, Georgina came back through. And she said it was all fixed. And she said there's no charge. I drove away, happy that my car was okay. It was driving home from Georgina's girlfriend's garage that I realised something didn't feel right in my life. I don't think it had felt right for a long time. I wasn't doing what I should be doing with my life. When I saw my sister at Christmas, she suggested that maybe I should do a PGCE. I didn't like the sound of that at first. But I was starting to wonder if maybe she was right. Back home that night, I looked at the forms online and I started to fill them in. She doesn't like that I don't do things like go on holiday. I think what she'd like is for me to go somewhere like Morocco or Sri Lanka travelling around and meet someone with nice hair and fall in love and buy a little house together somewhere nice like Sheffield. 
I think that's all anyone wants, really. My friend Luke had a baby, and that baby is ten now. And there are even more extreme examples than that of getting older. All those Thetford Forest ravers are listening to cycling podcasts now. And baking. I guess at some stage Avril realised she was the kind of person who helped out at the village hall and made jam out of the gooseberries in her garden. I bet Natalie Imbruglia is so bored of singing Torn. In May, I went back to the town I grew up in, to a wedding of one of my friends from school. The night before the ceremony, we all went to the pub. Loads of us, crisps and telling jokes and real ale around a big table. I'd already decided I was going to quit my job. At work, we've been told they found a new place for the non-verbal person we support. It's much quieter there, much more suitable. She'll be happier. All the staff say, we'll go and visit her. And one or two will. Maybe. The last time we all sat around like this, we were probably 18. The only person who said no when I went to the bar and said, should I get crisps? Is the one who ended up eating nearly all of the crisps. But that's a good thing about getting a bit older. We know that's how life works. Go on then, eat all the pipers, you greedy fucker. It doesn't matter. We all love you, regardless. The girl I used to walk to school with is a yoga teacher now. She lost her job at HSBC in the credit crunch, which now seems impossibly nostalgic. At first she'd been devastated, but then she went on a mindfulness retreat, and that changed everything. And sitting in the pub the night before the wedding, she made us play this game where she asked questions, and you had to say the first thing that came into your head. I used to go round to her house and we'd play sensible soccer on her dad's Amiga and now we were doing this. We all sat in a circle in the pub and she told us to close our eyes and she asked each of us a question. The question she asked me was, what is the thing you are proudest of? And the answer I gave was something I never would have realised until I heard it coming out of my mouth. My life is so different now. One of my friends admitted that night that they were in a bit of a mess. Their car had just failed its MOT and they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't have the money to get it repaired. I said if they wanted, they could have my car. I didn't really feel like I was going to be needing it anymore. I'd just done the last of the rural touring dates I had booked in for the year. I'd just done four nights in a row in Cumbria, and as four men in purple trousers told me, Cumbria, that's a long way from Norwich, and they were right. I felt like I needed a change. It's important to have fresh starts sometimes. Life had been sliding for too long. That day that I started my job as a support worker was the day Donald Trump was inaugurated. 
The ceremony was on the TV in the front room of the house I worked in. I remember looking across and thinking, this really is a brand new universe. I told my boss I was leaving. I told them how much I'd enjoyed the job. They left it open for me. They said I was always welcome back. They always need support workers. And maybe I will be back there one day. When I gave my friend the car, I said, this is the funny way the petrol cap opens. And there are no electric windows, but that's good exercise for your elbows. And there's no CD player and the radio doesn't work. But don't worry, the glove box is full of tapes. So now every time they drive to work, across the Humber Bridge, they listen to those tapes. Sometimes they text me to say what they've been listening to. Or to ask about songs they've heard. Those tapes are such a big part of my teenage life. Feels like they're driving around in my scrapbook. I'm really glad I heard those tapes. But you can't lock yourself away with your memories. I'd been hiding for too long. But someone at work dropped their favourite mug the other day. And sobbed. And I worry none of us are really prepared for anything. For two months last year, I was happier than I've ever been before. So I know I'm definitely still capable of it. I thought I should tell Georgina what had happened to her car. That beautiful polo that they'd had for so long that they drove everywhere, listening to each other's compilation tapes. I decided to walk over to the garage. I explained the situation. I said I loved that polo, but someone else needed it, and I wanted to say thanks. I said because they'd given me that car, I'd been able to carry on doing my job. And I reconnected with all those happy memories from a big box of tapes that I would never have listened to otherwise. I said I know you probably think this is stupid, but to show you how much I loved that car, I've written it. A story. Thanks again to John Osborne. For more of John's work, um, his poetry collections, uh, his radio work, TV, go to www.johnosbornewriter.com. That's John with an H, Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N-E. This episode also featured music from Jeremy Wormsley. Go to jeremywormsley.com for more.
Um, finally, a uh, quick heads up. Um, I've changed the way that I'm running my Patreon support. So now, for $5 a month, you can get access to a brand new supporter-only podcast series in which I return to past episodes of the podcast and discuss the themes, structure, inspiration, etc. with another artist. I know that's a pretty self-indulgent premise for a show, but really I just want to use the format as a, as a springboard to talk to other artists about podcasting as a storytelling medium and um, what we've learned about that medium through the, um, the experiments we've tried. Uh, the first episode, uh, which is already up now on the feed, is with stand-up and writer Angus Dunnigan. Uh, we're talking about episode 70, uh, a.k.a. Sex and the City, The Return. And we mostly talk on that episode about immersive theatre. We don't really get into talking about Sex and the City at all, so I might have to do a follow-up episode on that one. Anyway, that's now available to all $5 patron supporters. You can find out more about that by going onto my Patreon page. Uh, $15 a month supporters also get uh, an exclusive essay film. Um, I make one a year. They're not available anywhere else apart from through my Patreon page. $25 supporters get to commission an original poem from me, uh, plus a copy of one of my books. And uh, yeah, I got to write some fun commissions over the Christmas break, and uh, I enjoyed that a lot. So, um, if you want to sign up to support the podcast and listen to this new series, um, that money, it doesn't just go to me, it goes to all the writers who feature on the show, I should say. Uh, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Ross G. Sutherland. And uh, that's, that's all. I'm going. Right now, I'm going. The show is over. <laughs> <laughs>